the next two Sundays, as well as Christmas Eve, we're going to be involved in a mini-series of sermons that I've titled Christmas Through the Eyes of the Prophets, in which we're going to look at three of the so-called major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and one of the minor prophets, Micah, on Christmas Eve. And we're going to begin this series this morning with a message that I have titled simply, Seeing What Isaiah Saw. Now, I have to help set the context for you. Isaiah lived during the decline of Israel, prophesying from about 740 to 700, possibly even as late as 680 B.C., He spoke the Word of God to a people who he describes in chapter 6 as dull and having heavy ears and blind eyes. They were a people who refused to listen to his warnings, warnings of looming disaster. He warned them that the sin of the people of Judah would bring about God's judgment. Yet he also declared that God is sovereign And that God would use Cyrus, the Persian, to return them from exile. The book of Isaiah fits the definition of prophecy that I gave to you last Sunday. In fact, when we examine the Word of God closely, 87% of the time that we find any word, any passage, any book referred to as prophetic, or even a prophetic, prophet speaking, we find proclamation, not prediction. Prediction passages only account for about 17% of what the prophets are, are sharing and speaking about. And so I define for you, prophecy is the proclamation of God's word to God's people regarding God's will as to how God's people are to live in light of a future that belongs solely to God. That is a message that needs to be proclaimed today. We need prophets in the pulpits. People who are looking at God's Word and are looking at what's going on in the world around us and saying, here's what God's Word says and here's going to be the result if you don't repent. In a January 2019 Discover Magazine article, uh, article that was written by Amy Paturel, uh, it was titled, The Science Behind Coincidence. What really, what's really going on when we encounter uncanny, co- con- un- I'll get it, uncanny connections. One of the suggestions that's given in that article is that often... Coincidence is simply our human minds looking for ways to create order out of chaos. And the author goes on to write that, quote, coincidences are an inevitable consequence of the mind searching for causal structure in reality. The idea is that our minds want to see the purpose in everyday occurrences, even if sometimes there is no purpose. However, Let me ask you, as intelligent, reasonable people, 
Is it possible that some coincidences aren't really coincidences at all? That they're not just our minds trying to see the purpose in everyday occurrences, but they're actually planned. That they are God incidences. Is it possible, which I want to propose is the case, that much of what we read in the Bible is in fact describing things that involve the now of that time, but at the same time also the not yet? You see, not only do the teachings of the Bible have to be understood in context, But it's absolutely necessary that we understand the historical context of each of those books. The writers were addressing specific people. They were addressing those specific people at a specific time, in specific locations, with specific problems that needed to be addressed. And while the proclamation of God's Word to God's people regarding God's will as to how they and how we as God's people should live in the light of the future that belongs to God. There was also the belief that the message had not only a present time application, but that it also had a not yet aspect. That's what Craig Blasing speaks about when he talks about the historical complexification of prophetic patterns. Basically, what he's saying is these were things that actually have a historical reference. But there is a pattern to the prophecy that gets repeated. It's complex. And as I shared with you more than once, in order to properly understand the Bible, we have to first of all understand the text, what the text says and means, the grammatical studies. Then we have to understand what the text meant to the original hearers, those listeners. Then we have to determine what we are experiencing that somehow might fit the pattern that was given. And then finally, only then can we understand the message for us today. So as we begin to look into the message of Isaiah, as we try to determine what it was that Isaiah saw regarding the coming of the Messiah, as we begin to move into the text, we need to understand the historical setting. Chapter 7 of Isaiah begins... In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Two men, two kings, coming to attack a city. And fear gripped the people. Fear gripped the royal family of Judah when the news arrived of that impending invasion. Two kings with all their forces. And in anticipation of a siege, King Ahaz began to inspect his defenses and especially his water supply. 
And though all, although Ahaz was no paradigm of virtue, he was the legitimate representative of the house of David. And for that reason, the Lord dispatches Isaiah to approach the king and to approach him with a word of encouragement in a moment of national crisis, a word of comfort and hope. And so Isaiah conveyed this encouragement by, listen to me, seven means. First, Isaiah offered encouragement through a symbolic name. The name of Isaiah's son, Shear Jashub, verse 3 of chapter 7. It means a remnant shall, in, shall return. He takes his son along with him and he says, Hey, this is my son, a remnant shall return. Huh? Get the picture? Huh? Then secondly, he gives them four commands. Two of them are positive and two negative. Take care, be calm, have no fear, don't be faint-hearted. That should have suggested to King Ahaz that he had nothing to worry about. Third, Isaiah brought encouragement through a metaphor. In verse 4, he compares the fierce anger of those two kings to just simply smoldering firebrands. You don't have to be afraid of them. And then he continues and with the fourth one by saying, there's no danger you need to be encouraged the plot to overthrow the Davidic dynasty was not going to succeed. Verse 7. Verse 8, the fifth one, a longer range prediction. Both of his adversaries ultimately had only human heads over them and they would fail. And then finally, the perfect number, the seventh, he offered a simple plan by which Ahaz might escape the dangers posed by the invasion. All Ahaz had to do was to believe the promise of God that he would be established on the throne. Verse 9. But, Isaiah was obviously able to see the skepticism that reflected in the face of King Ahaz. And so Isaiah commanded Ahaz to ask for a sign. And the king had the freedom to ask whatever he wanted to ask, whatever event, whether it was of the heights, the heavens, or the depths, show anything that he wanted to ask that might convince him of the truth of God's Word. But Ahaz... He wasn't interested in signs and such. He wasn't even interested in the message Isaiah was bringing from God. He had already resolved a political solution to his problem. He was going to ask Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian tyrant king, for aid against those two other kings. In other words, Ahaz rebelled against Isaiah's command. Though he couched his rebellion in pious jargon. You ever know people that do that? He said, Oh, I will not ask and I'll not put the Lord to test. Now if those words of Ahaz had been coming from a godly man, they would have been something that was admirable. 
But as it was, they were only an attempt to cover up his unbelief and his hypocrisy. The royal family had tried the patience of God's men, the prophets, again and again. And now Ahaz's defiant rejection of this gracious offer of a sign was trying the patience of God himself. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Whether you want a sign or not, God's going to give you a sign. And a sign was given. A virgin, I know the word's Alma, a word that is never used though of a married woman. An Alma would conceive and bear a son. Strictly speaking, the word means just a young woman of marriageable age. But in that day, as an unmarried woman, she was also a virgin if she was alive. Because if she wasn't married and didn't marry the man who impregnated her, she was stoned to death. So who is this Alma in Isaiah 7.14? Who is this young marriageable woman, this virgin? It could not have been Mary. I know, I know, That's we'll get to that. But it couldn't have been Mary because that wouldn't have been any kind of sign at all that King Ahaz. Why, 700 years from now, there's going to be a virgin have a son. Don't you feel better, Ahaz? No, among the more common views are possibly Isaiah's wife or wife-to-be or possibly Ahaz's wife, the mother of Hezekiah. So what was the message that Isaiah was given to Ahaz? It was that in the time that it takes for a young woman who is currently unmarried, currently a virgin, to conceive, have a baby, and for the baby to grow to the age of accountability. Read on in Isaiah. It says that 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 child was going to be able to know right from wrong. In that amount of time, the two threats to you, Ahaz, Rezin and Pekah, would be eliminated. That was a sign that Ahaz was able to see, watch, and understand. However, the Apostle Matthew saw in this verse a direct prediction of the birth of Jesus. It was truly a message of comfort and hope. It was a message regarding a Messiah, a Savior, who would be born. And if it's not that Matthew didn't know his history... Matthew was a Jewish scribe. But having experienced the life and the teachings of Jesus firsthand, he was able to see in the writing. He was able to see in the prophecy of Isaiah what Isaiah didn't even truly see. That even though God gave the not yet part of the vision through him, Isaiah, and Matthew was able to see that in the account of Jesus' birth, Isaiah was talking about something that King Ahaz could see in his lifetime. But yet look again at the prophecy. The prophecy of Isaiah states 
that the child would be male. He would be given the unique name, Emmanuel, God with us. People say, well, the Bible never refers to Jesus as Emmanuel. Really? Really? How does the Gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A little bit later it says, and He pitched His tent. He tabernacled um, with us. He was God with us. Emmanuel. Three, He would grow up in humble circumstances for His diet would consist of curds and honey. Jesus grew up with Mary and Joseph poor. How do we know that? We know that by the gifts that they gave when they went to dedicate Him. The turtle doves. You gave a lamb for a sacrifice, but if you were poor, there was a, a way that you could give these birds that you could afford. And He would experience the normal course of growth like any other boy. Isn't that what Luke says? And He grew in stature and wisdom and in favor with man. You see, though Isaiah may have been prophesying about the end of the divided kingdom, Matthew saw in the complex prophetic pattern that the now for Isaiah's time included the not yet that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But Isaiah saw even more. If you turn to the passage that Autumn read for us as our call to worship, Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. It's a message of authority and power. A message that it would be as Son of God that this child would reign. That this special child would be born is a clear sign in reference to his humanity. But notice how quickly Isaiah emphasizes that the child would be born for us. He was sent for the people of God. And that though he would be born by natural childbirth, he was a gift sent by God. And the government would be upon his shoulders as a child. You see, the authority is confirmed. It's unfolded by means of four names. Wonderful Counselor, emphasizing the supernatural nature of his wisdom. Mighty God, though many others were associated with God, no other person had God's name. Eternal Father, no human ruler was ever spoken of as eternal. But Jesus would establish the throne of David forever. And finally, Prince of Peace, verse 7, is emphasizing the work that this child would perfectly accomplish. Dominion, a vast kingdom, prosperity that would never end. And you see, no human ruler has ever or ever. No human ruler will ever be able to accomplish those things. And so, actually, he leads us to the next point. 
Because the emphasis of this kingdom would be to establish and sustain the qualities of justice and righteousness. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. This passage, by the way, came alive to me. Donnie and Mary Jane had that big, massive tree on the east side of their house cut down. But they left this stump that's about 16 feet tall. And it just sat there until this past spring. Do you know what happened this past spring? Shoots started coming out of the top of that stump. There was still life there in that stump. Though many would have given it up for dead. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Essentially, these verses teach us that the line of David was on its way out until the Messiah was born. The Assyrians had all but destroyed the kingdom of Judah. And then the Babylonians actually brought Judah to an end in 587 B.C. David's dynasty appeared as decimated as the Assyrian army was at this point. And yet Isaiah was able to look beyond the people's trials to the glorious kingdom that had been provided. The kingdom that would be established when the Messiah, the tender shoot from a seemingly dead stump, would come to reign. And unlike previous rulers, the divinic descendant wouldn't rule by what he saw with his eyes, nor what he heard with his ears. His justice wouldn't be based on human observation and estimation. No, his justice would be based on principles outlined by the Lord God. It would be a reign that would bring about righteousness and faithfulness like the belt holds one's clothing in place. Why? Because this king would be established by God's Spirit. John and Mark begin the ministry of Jesus there at the Jordan River with the baptism. Matthew and Luke talk about the birth. But all four Gospels include the baptism, and in all four accounts of the baptism, as Jesus is inaugurating His ministry, what happens? The Spirit comes down like a dove. He's anointed. He's enabled by the power of the Spirit. 
So what is the message of Christmas that we can see through the eyes of Isaiah? What is the message of hope for today? Well, go back with me a minute. Remember how the Lord commanded Isaiah to take his son, Shear Jeshub? A remnant shall return. And meet Ahaz as the king was inspecting the city's water. But Ahaz's heart had been wavering. And the hearts of his people were shaking for fear. Where are we at today? Is our faith conquering our fear? Are we examples of those watching us of faith over fear? And even though they were afraid, Isaiah came with a message of assurance. Take heed. Be quiet. Don't fear. Don't be faint-hearted. And how would Ahaz find this inner peace? The only way to find peace is by believing God's promises. Do you hear me? The only way to find peace in your life is by obeying and believing God's promises. For Ahaz, it meant believing that Judah's enemies would be defeated. What's it mean for you and me today? Listen to me. Read the Word. Because faith in God's promises is the only way to find peace in the midst of trouble. And the only way you can know God's promises is by reading God's Word. Isaiah would later write in chapter 26, verses 2-4, to Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. He trusts in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. If Ahaz had believed God's promise, he would have broken his alliance and called the nation to prayer and praise. But the king committed in his unbelief. Is it possible that the message for us this Christmas season is to repent and seek God by means of prayer and praise? There may be no hope for our nation. I'm pessimistic. I've shared that with you before. But as a church, as individuals, you and I can start heading in the right direction. And who knows? Others just might follow. Let's pray.